Short Rounds. Hey, y'all, and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is a Philippine War bonus short round, a supplement to the story of the Philippine-American War that we're telling in the series. Our focus in this short round will be the Buffalo Soldiers, the African-American soldiers of the U.S. Army in one of their greatest and most forgotten conflicts. This is a brief digression from the main story, like a side chapter, but I think it's really important for illustrating just how American racial issues and black history intersected with this conflict, and it contains some of the more famous incidents in the Philippine War story. The Buffalo Soldiers were the black units of the U.S. Army that served from 1866 throughout the Indian Wars, the Spanish-American War, and the Philippine War. And in this short round, we're going to talk about what these units were, their service, several notable engagements, and most of all, the black experience in the American imperial age. What did they and their fellow African Americans at home think about all of this, especially fighting to subjugate a darker-skinned people for a country that oppressed them at home? That's a thorny question. The history of black Americans in the U.S. military is a proud one, even during the period of segregation, which makes this story that much more complicated. So let's meet the black men carrying the white man's burden. As always, this is not just history, but military history, so there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. This podcast is PG-13, the language is clean, the content is not. All my sources will be posted on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, so if you want to fact check me, that's where you can do that. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. On July 31st, 1899, an American troop ship arrived in Manila. Reinforcements had been pouring into the island since the monsoon began to pump up numbers for General Otis's big offensive. But unlike previous arrivals, the troops on board this ship were black. A white soldier supposedly challenged them when they landed. What are you coons doing here? Oh, we're off to a great start. The newcomers clapped back. We've come to take up the white man's burden. These soldiers were the 25th Infantry Regiment, the first Buffalo soldiers in the Philippines. From 1865 to 1948, the United States Army was a segregated service where black and white soldiers served in different units. This might seem messed up, and it was... But considering that before the Civil War, there had been no black soldiers at all, segregated units were actually a step forward. If these didn't exist, there would probably be no black soldiers in the army. The black regiments of the U.S. Regular Army in 1898 were the 24th and 25th Infantry and the 9th and 10th Cavalry. They were organized after the end of the Civil War as the Union Army was disbanded and the regulars got back to their old job of fighting the American Indians. By 1866, the black regiments were on the frontier, which would be their main beat for the next three decades. Black regiments were almost never stationed in the east in the populated areas because most white people saw armed and uniformed black people on their doorstep as the next thing to the apocalypse. The units gained their famous nickname on this frontier. It came from an American Indian, probably either a Comanche or an Apache, Probably the Comanche, just because the 10th Cavalry was always fighting the Comanche. Either way, American Indians saw a resemblance between the curly, kinky hair of the black soldiers. Not not that I'm saying that's all black people's hair, that's just how the Indians saw it. And they saw a a resemblance between that and the fur of the bison. 
This was how the black regiments came to be called the Buffalo Soldiers. And during this period, 1866 to 1891, the Buffalo Soldiers had a splendid reputation as some of the best soldiers in the U.S. Army. White officers like Lieutenant John J. Pershing of the 10th Cavalry, who got his nickname Black Jack from his service with the Buffalo Soldiers, had a very high opinion of their segregated soldiers. Honestly, the Buffalo Soldiers were something close to elite regiments. And there's a reason for this. The U.S. Army in this time period was not a highly regarded employer. Most white people could find a better job anywhere else and usually did. And desertion was sky high during the 1870s and 1880s but not in the black regiments. For black people in the age of Jim Crow, a soldier was one of the best things you could be. It was one of the best jobs you could get. So on average, the Buffalo soldiers were of higher quality and more motivated than your average white soldier. They had more to prove. The Buffalo soldiers accounted for 17 Congressional Medals of Honor during the Indian Wars. So yeah, they were kind of an elite. And starting in 1907, 100 troopers from the 9th and 10th Cavalry were stationed at West Point to teach horsemanship to the cadets because they were universally considered the best riders in the army. But the Buffalo soldiers still faced horrifying racism, and West Point, speak of the devil, provides an example. There were no black officers in the army during or right after the Civil War, and only a handful of cadets ever made it into West Point, and they experienced relentless abuse. In April 1880, Cadet Johnson Whitaker was found tied to his bed, beaten and bleeding. He had obviously been hazed by the white cadets, but the official inquiry decided that he had somehow beaten himself and tied himself up and cut himself up and dismissed him for allegedly fabricating the attack. Welcome to being black in the 19th century. Out of 25 black cadets who managed to make it to West Point in the 19th century, only three made it through and got a commission. When Charles Young graduated in 1889, he would be the last black West Point graduate for nearly 50 years. The Buffalo soldiers on the frontier ran into racism, too, from local white settlers and townspeople, including some lynchings. They, yeah, they were lynching U.S. soldiers. There was one incident where soldiers of the 10th Cavalry were ambushed by some white outlaws, and they killed a couple of them. But then they were arrested and charged with murder for killing the outlaws, because it doesn't matter if they were outlaws, that's a black man killing a white man, we can't have that. Welcome to being black in the 19th century. But they were relatively safe compared to black folks down south. Jim Crow, segregation, lynching, and state-sanctioned violence were rampant in this time period. The 1890s were probably the low point of black civil rights between the Civil War and the present day and the black community was divided in their response. Black educator Booker T. Washington was widely seen, especially by white people, as the quote-unquote leader of the African-American community. In 1895, he made a speech proposing what is called the Atlanta Compromise. Black Americans would build separate educational and economic institutions rather than directly challenging D Jim Crow. This was essentially a compromise with segregation, which Washington has been criticized for ever since, but in his defense, what were they supposed to do? He saw segregated success, things like the Buffalo Soldiers, as the only viable path forward. But others opposed this policy. W.E.B. Du Bois was Washington's main rival in the black community. In 1905, he and other black leaders founded the Niagara Movement, which rejected Washington's Atlanta Compromise and promoted legal action to overturn segregation. This movement eventually morphed into the NAACP. 
Yet another voice was Ida B. Wells, a black feminist who published a series of pamphlets documenting the evils of lynching, the murder of black men by mob violence. Speak of the devil, a white mob burned down her presses in Memphis, Tennessee, ran her and her co-workers out of town, and threatened to kill her if she ever returned. Welcome to being black in the 19th century. You don't get free speech. That's, a, that's something white people get. Washington and Du Bois saw her as too radical, and her vehemence on racial issues alienated her from many white feminists. But for many to this day, Ida B. Wells remains a heroine, the patron saint of black feminism. What I'm getting at is that black Americans in the 1890s were not a monolith. I've said before, my theme for this series is that non-white peoples weren't just side characters or faceless mobs. They were actors, they had agency, they had choices and decisions. Black Americans were divided on how to confront the issues of white supremacy and racism, and they would be divided when the Spanish-American War arrived. Booker T. Washington and his faction encouraged black Americans to rally behind the flag for the war effort in 1898. Washington pointed out that 22 black sailors had also died in the explosion of the USS Maine, and he urged African Americans to prove their loyalty to the Stars and Stripes. Like, maybe if we participate in this war, we'll finally get the recognition and credit we deserve. On the other hand, black religious leader Henry Turner pointed out that nothing the Spanish did in Cuba was worse than what black people suffered every day in America. Even some of the Buffalo soldiers agreed. Chaplain George W. Prolew of the 9th Cavalry asked, Is America any better than Spain? Has she not subjects in her midst who are murdered daily without trial? But still, some 15,000 African Americans served in the Spanish-American War, including several regiments of state volunteers from the North, South, and West. There were a couple of units that were called the Immunes, basically the uh, misguided belief that Black people were somehow immune to tropical diseases that white people weren't immune to, and so they'd be better for service in the tropics. The immunes suffered pretty badly from malaria and stuff like that. But the cutting edge would be the Buffalo Soldiers, part of the main invasion force destined for Cuba. But when they arrived at their staging points in Tampa, the 9th and 10th Cavalry ran into issues with the Jim Crow South. These guys had been on the frontier for decades, and they didn't really grasp how bad things were down here, and Southerners were horrified to see confident, well-armed black people who just didn't seem to understand how things were done around here. There were multiple violent incidents as the Buffalo Soldiers challenged the Jim Crow status quo, which inspired many in the black community. And all four regiments of Buffalo Soldiers played a prominent part in the Spanish-American War in Cuba. They fought brilliantly in all the battles, especially San Juan Hill. When Theodore Roosevelt's Rough Riders made their famous charge, they reached the top of the hill and they were suddenly isolated and in trouble. But the 10th Cavalry came rushing up the hill behind them to pull their bacon out of the fire. The famous photograph of Teddy and his Rough Riders that graces so many textbooks is often cropped. Like they take the centerpiece of the photograph, but they leave out the fringes. Because to his left and right are the Buffalo Soldiers of the 9th and 10th Cavalry, the other heroes of San Juan Hill. Five black soldiers of the 10th Cavalry received the Medal of Honor in the Spanish-American War, the last black soldiers to receive the medal for half a century. But it was Teddy and his Rough Riders that got the glory, and they're the ones everyone remembers today, even if the Buffalo Soldiers were probably the best units in the Army at the time, and probably the backbone of the American forces at the Battle of San Juan Hill. 
Unknown soldiers indeed. But then the Philippine War began, and African Americans were much less enthusiastic about this one. Even Booker T. Washington believed that America had no right to go trying to fix anyone else's problems when they still had so many problems of their own. African-American politician William Lewis said, What a spectacle America is exhibiting today. Colombia stands offering liberty to the Cubans on one hand, cramming liberty down the throats of the Filipinos with the other, but with both feet planted on the neck of the Negro. W.E.B. Du Bois and Ida B. Wells both saw the Philippine War as a manifestation of America's racial and imperialist spirit, just Jim Crow in another costume. The debate was especially difficult because black people had aligned themselves with the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, ever since the Civil War, and because the Democrats were still representative of the Jim Crow South. But now the Republican Party was the one using all this racial rhetoric to justify the war in the Philippines, and it put them in a very tight spot politically. Some black Americans, though, did see progressive imperialism as an extension of the glorious cause of the Civil War. Black lawyer Gurley Brewer said in the fall of 1899, The natives in these faraway islands in the Pacific are now being offered the same boon that was offered the American Negro in 1861. The future that Lincoln offered the Negro is being fulfilled. Yeah, one small problem with that, the black people in the South were not openly rejecting and shooting at the Union soldiers trying to give them their freedom. Uh, slight difference. African Americans were concerned with the Philippine War for lots of reasons. It was impossible to ignore all the racial rhetoric used to justify the conflict, and many black Americans worried that a rise in racism abroad would mean a similar rise at home. Some of them did report that ever since the Spanish-American and Philippine-American War began, there would just seem to be a lot more racism rolling around, just a lot more racial talk. Lots of the arguments imperialists used about lesser races, you know, we have to, we have to, you know, take their freedom away for their own good. Well, that kind of applied to Jim Crow as well, if you looked at it long enough. Plus, there was the age-old question raised again during the World Wars and Vietnam. Why should I fight for a country that treats my people like garbage? As Muhammad Ali would famously say during the Vietnam War, you know, paraphrasing, no Filipino ever called me the N-word. And this ambiguity centered on the Buffalo Soldiers. They had been seen as a triumph for the black community, a valuable career option in America that had so few opportunities for black people. But now they were sailing off to a war that many saw was the epitome of American hypocrisy and American racism. By August 1899, the 24th and 25th Infantry arrived in Manila to reinforce the American war effort. Both regiments would see hard fighting throughout the final stages of the conventional war in the Philippines. The 25th Infantry was assigned to MacArthur's division in the central Luzon Valley, and the 24th to General Young's fast-moving cavalry brigade that was sent in pursuit of Aguinaldo. During this period, November 1899 to January 1900, sort of around the end of last week's episode, Philippine War Part II, so this is in that final campaign, the 24th and 25th Infantry took part in a series of celebrated actions in northern and central Luzon. In November 1899, during MacArthur's final campaign up the railroad, the 25th Infantry was sent to assault a Filipino town called O'Donnell. About 400 men of the 25th crept forward, taking a roundabout route to launch a surprise attack. 
At 4 a.m. on November 19th, the black soldiers launched their surprise attack, suffering not a single man wounded but totally overrunning the Filipino position. The well-executed assault on O'Donnells captured 207 Filipino prisoners, 225 rifles, and 10,000 rounds of ammunition. It was a showpiece action for the skill and courage of the black American soldier. In the meantime, the 24th Regiment was making another one of those legendary marches that characterized the Philippine War. The bulk of the regiment participated in General Young's pursuit of President Aguinaldo through northern Luzon. But on November 22, 1899, General Lawton detached Captain Joseph Batchelor and a battalion of the 24th Infantry to occupy the mountain town of Bayambong in northern Luzon. But Captain Batchelor, a white man leading a black battalion, took it upon himself to expand his mission. He decided to advance far to the north to conquer the distant Cagayan Valley, all the way to Apari on Luzon's far northern coast. Lawton was shocked, like, I asked this dude to go next door to borrow some milk, but he's in a whole other state. But it was too late to stop him. Bachelor and his buffalo soldiers vanished into the wilderness of northern Luzon. The Bachelor expedition got lost, turned around, uh, misled, suffered from starvation and disease and exhaustion. But the 24th's buffalo soldiers made the march somehow. It was epic, a miniature odyssey, hiking and fighting their way through Filipino resistance, all the way through hundreds of miles to within 80 miles of Apari. On December 13th, they met up with a U.S. Navy gunboat sent up the Cagayan River to find them. Like, go find, go figure out what happened to those guys. They're in there somewhere. Please go find them. The month-long expedition nearly destroyed the battalion, ruined Captain Bachelor's career, Not many men died, but most of them were just sick and unfit for further service for months. It was epic, and it was pointless, and it demonstrated the resilience of the Buffalo Soldiers and the poor uses to which they could be put. In the meantime, the 25th Infantry was fighting its own miniature epic. They had been sent to occupy the western coast of Luzon, and the new year of 1900 saw Captain Joseph P. O'Neill's Company F of the 25th occupying the town of Iba. On January 6, 1900, Company F was attacked by almost 1,000 Filipino insurgents. The Buffalo soldiers hunkered down in three buildings, including the local church, and laid down sheets of fire against an enemy that outnumbered them over 10 to 1. Like, you gotta imagine these Buffalo soldiers in their blue denim shirts and campaign hats, passing rifles back and forth, slamming more rounds into the Craig Jorgensen, just laying down sheets of flame from outside those church windows. Private Michael Robinson remembered fighting through the night into the dawn of January 7th. The firing kept steadily on until daybreak, and when it became light, we could see insurgents on all sides like bees. The officers could be seen trying to urge their men on, but they seemed to falter under the deadly fire of the crags. Finally, At daybreak, Captain O'Neill ordered a simultaneous bayonet charge that scattered the Filipinos back into the hills. Astonishingly, several dozen, maybe even a hundred of the enemy were dead, but not one Buffalo soldier had been killed or wounded. Private Robinson said, Not a man shirked his duty and acted as if at target practice, firing carefully and accurately, and even making comical remarks concerning the appearance of the insurgents. These boys feel that they have avenged the cowardly murder of our friend and comrade, William Shepard, who was murdered while bathing by ten bolo men. 
The Battle of Eba became f- semi-famous in black newspapers back home as just another display of the uh, martial prowess and the astonishing ability of the Buffalo soldiers. But in the same letter he described the Battle of Eba to the newspapers, Private Robinson referenced a new development. The Philippine resistance were starting a propaganda campaign aimed at the Buffalo soldiers. A lot of their rhetoric sounded just like what black critics of the war were saying at home, like, Look how the white people treat you, and now they're doing the same thing to us. The white Americans trying to imperialize the Philippines are the same ones with their boots on your backs. We are really on the same side. The Filipino propagandists even mentioned specific incidents of lynching, showing that they were keeping up with the American news. Like, hey, remember that thing that happened last year? The the death of Sam Hose? Yeah, so why are you fighting for these guys? We We're on the same side. Come join us. And some black soldiers acknowledged that they had a point. Like, seriously, I have a whole book of letters from black soldiers in the Spanish and Philippine War. I I referenced this book from Private Robinson's letter. This book is called Smoked Yankees. The Buffalo Soldiers, and you you read these letters, and they're astonishing. They were very cognizant of the contradictions in their actions of black soldiers carrying the white man's burden for the nation of Jim Crow. Many soldiers write very eloquently about how immoral this war is and how conflicted they feel and how they're like, yeah, we're doing our jobs, but it's kind of, I don't know if I feel good about this. There was a lot of evidence that black soldiers got along with the Filipinos better than whites. They were less likely to see them as racial inferiors. Many black soldiers expressed discomfort with the open racism that white soldiers showed towards the Filipinos, with one black infantryman saying, I feel sorry for the Filipinos and all that have come under control of the United States. I don't believe that they will be justly dealt by. The first thing in the morning is the Negro, and the last thing at night is the Negro. And of course, he used a different word. I'm not going to use that word. Seeing white soldiers using that word on the Filipinos had to have made the Buffalo soldiers feel some kind of way. And some of them did a lot more than think about the hypocrisy. A very small number acted on it. During the Philippine War, a total of five black soldiers deserted and joined the Filipino resistance. The most famous of these five was David Fagan. Fagan joined the 24th Infantry Regiment in 1898 during its stay in Tampa, and by 1899 he had been promoted to corporal. But at some point during the autumn campaign of 1899, he ran into a bit of trouble with his sergeant in Company I. The sergeants were black. The officers in these units were white. The sergeants were black. So when he he heard Aguinaldo's anti-American pro-black propaganda, he made the decision to desert and throw in with the Filipinos. David Fagan joined a guerrilla band in east-central Luzon, led by General Jose Alejandrino, and eventually got himself promoted to captain in the Philippine army. Captain Fagan was a remarkable, well-known figure in his day, the prominent black American soldier who had gone over to the other side and become an officer in the Filipino resistance. He was apparently a pretty good guerrilla fighter, and he was also a troll, because he kept sending letters to his old superiors taunting them for their failure to catch him. One of those people was General Frederick Funston, who can't have been happy to basically get a dozen letters a week saying, ha ha, you can't get me. Fagan even ensured that American prisoners were treated well, including one of his old comrades from the 24th, who he tried to persuade to desert, the guy did not, and a white officer. David Fagan managed to evade capture for two years, even with a bounty on his head. But his luck seems to have run out. 
In December 1901, a Filipino bounty hunter brought in what he claimed was Fagan's severed head and some other corroborating evidence. Fagan was declared dead, but the head was not exactly positively identified, and you know what? Who knows? You'd like to think he managed to get away and get like a good house somewhere. And one version of events says he did retire to the mountains to an undisclosed location and lived happily ever after. Either way, this story screams for a movie. Actually, you know what? There is a movie. An indie Filipino movie called David F. made in 2013 about the black experience in the Philippines across the centuries, which no one has ever seen. No one's ever seen this movie. (laughs) I think like 20 people saw this movie. But David Fagan's story has gotten a fair bit of historical attention recently, including the 2018 biography. But he and his fellow deserters were a tiny exception that do not exemplify the black experience of the Philippine War. Because at the end of the day, the Buffalo soldiers did their jobs. Like the rest of the soldiers in the Philippines, sympathy for the Filipinos, which many soldiers black and white had, did not stop them from carrying out their duties. Elements of all four black regular regiments would continue to serve in the Philippines. The 9th and 10th Cavalry would be in the islands by 1901, mostly fighting in the Visayas on Panay and Samar. The 9th Cavalry, 24th and 25th Infantry would all serve in the Moro War from 1902 to 1913. And eventually the regular units were also joined by two regiments of black U.S. volunteers, the 48th and 49th Infantry Regiments. The raising of new volunteer regiments and the sudden need for an enlargement of the U.S. Army allowed for the direct commissioning of a few more black officers. Only a few, like you can count them on both hands. African-American Captain David Gilmer of the 49th Infantry even commanded the garrison of a town on Mindanao, an astonishing level of responsibility for a black officer. Another officer was Lieutenant Benjamin O. Davis Sr., who served with the 10th Cavalry in the Philippines after he got his commission in 1901 and eventually he became the first black general in American history during World War II. Lots of Buffalo soldiers stayed in the Philippines when their enlistments ended. They were attracted to the Philippines as a possible escape from the repressive racism of Jim Crow back home, and their army pensions were just went a lot farther than in the poverty-stricken Philippines than in Chicago or Memphis. So a decent number of the Buffalo soldiers retired to, started businesses in, and built families in the Philippines. And they were lucky, because back in the United States, the efforts of the Buffalo soldiers did not change the racial status quo. Far from improving the stature of African Americans, the service of the Buffalo soldiers changed nobody's mind. The racism had gone abroad with them and found new targets, but the old targets were still fair game. There were 106 lynchings of black people in 1900 and 105 in 1901 without an appreciable slowdown. I will go so far as to say that Booker T. Washington was wrong. Black Americans could not earn their rights. They would never improve their status in the long term by compromising with segregation. It would take the efforts of millions of people, black and white, to ultimately overthrow Jim Crow in the 1960s and 1970s. And the U.S. Army, for all its faults, was at the spearhead of integration. On July 26, 1948, President Harry S. Truman's Executive Order 9981 ended segregation in the U.S. military, which might seem pretty late, but this makes it one of the first American institutions to desegregate. Six days earlier, Brigadier General Benjamin O. Davis retired from the U.S. Army after 50 years of service that began with the Philippine War. 
Much of the recognition the Buffalo soldiers deserved for their underappreciated service only came much later in the 20th century. Didn't hurt that Bob Marley wrote a song about them. The Buffalo soldiers were some of the best American soldiers of the Philippine War, with all the credit and all the criticism that deserves. To call them tools of the American empire is too simple. They were living, thinking humans with opinions of their own, who made choices, who volunteered to go fight in the Philippines in many cases. They shared most of the positive and negative qualities of their white comrades. Most of them saw military service as their duty and as their way of advancing equality at home. So they did their job and did it well, and their job from 1899 to 1913 was imperialism. This is far from the last time that victims of one great cruelty would go on to help perpetuate another. History is complicated. No one in the Philippine War would come out with clean hands, whether those hands were black or white. Thanks a bunch for listening today. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it. If you don't tell your enemies, check my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com for all today's sources and maps, including the locations of the Bachelor Expedition and the Battle of Eba. I am always available on Facebook or Twitter, who knows how much longer, on at UNK Soldiers Pod. You can even email, email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary. If you got advice, I'd love to hear it. And don't forget to tune in next week because the Philippine War is about to get nasty. Check out Philippine War Part 3, Hearts and Minds, next week on Unknown Soldiers. (laughs) 